following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. One of the nice things for you boys and girls in our congregation is there's so many children your age, which means that you have opportunities and some of you have developed very close friendships with children from other families. And that's great, because friendships are very important. Uh, We know this as adults. Uh, God made us in his image. We are social creatures, and because of that, friendships are very important. And you've had the privilege of not only having your spouse as your best friend, but men with men, women with women, couples with couples or couples with singles, uh, developing these friendships that are so important so much of the, of the spice uh, in our lives, and we thank God for them. But some of us have also experienced the, the betrayal of a friend, uh, the loss of a friendship. When a friend uh, heard an accusation against us and, and believed it without investigation, or one who was a friend betrayed us by actually carrying slander uh, about us Uh, to others, or perhaps one who has been a friend who, regardless of what you say, you cannot convince that person about your motives, and they refuse to be reconciled to you. So just as friendship is so wonderful in our lives, there are a few things more painful in life than the betrayal of or the loss of a friend. And that's what Job now is dealing with in the second half of chapter 6. Now, in chapter 6 and 7, Job makes his first response to his friends. Remember that Eliphaz, in chapters 4 and 5, accuses Job of being a hypocrite, that he must be living in gross sin because of the punishment, the calamities that have come upon him. Uh, He censures Job for trying to make himself right with God, He applies these truths to Job with biblical principles that are true, but wrongly applied because he has wrongly understood Job's condition. He calls Job then to quit fighting against God and to seek God. Now, in chapter 6, Job begins to respond. The first half of the chapter that we examined last week, Job then seeks to establish that he's not a hypocrite. I pointed out that Job's not talking past these men. No, Job is clearly responding to the accusation against him and establishing that he's not a hypocrite. And in the second place, he, in a sense, is continuing his desire for death, but now he's moved from wishing for it to asking God to take his life. And although he might do so with some presumption, we also recognize in that that it's not wrong um, for a believer in the circumstances such as Job finds himself humbly to ask God to take his life if it is according to God's holy will. Now, as Job has been sitting there and now as his friends are basically attacking him, he responds next to the manner of their dealing with him. And that is that they have been uh, not true friends, 
but treacherous friends. And in exposing the, the treachery of these friends, uh, the Holy Spirit through Job lays out for us two very important principles about true friendship. Remember, this is wisdom literature. And as we work our way through Job, I have two responsibilities, to open up the scripture and to seek then to apply to all of us the principles that the Spirit is laying out for us. So what I want to show you this morning is, is that true friendship consists in compassion and speaking the truth in love. True friendship consists in compassion and speaking the truth in love. And we'll just think about those two things, okay? Uh, first, we're going to look at that uh, a friend is a compassionate person. And second, a friend is one who speaks the truth in love. Well, in verses uh, 14 through, back here to my text, in verses uh, 14 through 23, uh, Job lays out the importance of compassion as a key ingredient in friendship. He makes a statement in verse 14 that for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friends. And the word kindness is covenant love alone. And Job has described himself as a despairing man, and the word literally means as a melting man. Really getting to the heart of, of what one suffers in these immense afflictions. He's, he's melting away as if he was his wax and on a hot day. And such a one uh, from his friends should receive covenant love, mercy, compassion. And notice the reason, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. The friends need to come alongside uh, in compassion and sympathy to uphold the brother or sister so that he will not forsake Almighty God. By God's grace, Job has stood firm. He did not deny the Lord. He did not turn against him. But he's also, remember he said in the first part of this chapter that he's not made of stone and bronze. That uh, he is close himself to teeter-tottering. And so in this condition of this despairing men, uh, a despairing man, uh, they need to consider his situation, that he could fall because that's what Satan is intensely pursuing and pressing uh, against Job. But you see, he makes here uh, this uh, accusation then that his brothers have not done this. They've come to him under the pretense of being friends, uh, but they have not shown him loving kindness. Uh, they've not been concerned for the condition his condition's been actually been expressed in the vehemency of his speech. And so to illustrate what they're really acting like, he gives this remarkable extended similitude. I love this. In fact, as, as I've read this, I think, I'm thinking, you know, that Homer must have read these kind of passages of Scripture. Because you've got this very long extended similitude that could have been said basically in, in a verse or two. But... Uh, he spelled it out, and these extended similitudes in the Bible are designed by the Holy Spirit to move our emotions. Job was seeking to 
move the, the emotions, to elicit kindness and compassion from his friends. So look at the similitude. He said, my brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanished. Now, do you boys and girls know what a wadi was in the Bible? The wadi was a stream bed that in the spring was full of water. And so you see that which in verse 16, which are turbid, water is boiling because of, of the ice and into which the snow melts. And so in the spring then, the wadis are roaring rivers because of the rainy season, because of the ice and the snow that have melted. When they become waterless, they're silent. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. Verse 18, the paths of their course wind along, and they go up into nothing and perish. Perhaps you've been, in, even in the American desert, and seen these stream beds. So they roar with water until desert begins to heat up, and then the source of the water is gone, and they're simply dry stream beds. Now, how is that deceitful? Well, he goes on to say that the caravans of Tema, verse 19, looked, and the travelers of Sheba hoped for them. Now, these were two desert areas, one probably in the northwest, one in the southwest. There are groups. They, you didn't travel alone, and so these... Um, these caravans, like a large army, are passing through the desert. Now, as they go one direction, uh, they see this beautiful supply of water. And so as they, they head back, perhaps, I mean, you know, about five miles over that way, there is a, there's a nice river, and we can go there and get water. But when they go over there, in verse 20, they were disappointed because they trusted they trusted there'd be water there, and they were confounded. Then the word is they were embarrassed. They, they were ashamed of, of their miscalculation. So you see the picture that um, the wadi is deceptive. It's offering refreshment. It's offering solace. It's offering uh, a drink in a hot desert, and yet it has nothing for them. So he applies that then to them in verse 21. Indeed, you have now become such. You're just like a wadi. You come to me uninvited to bring comfort. Uh, you come to me bringing some to Job anticipation of solace. But they're just like a wadi. They advertised and they were not. Because they had failed to come to him in compassion. In other words, he said, you see terror and are afraid. They came up to him. You remember, when they first saw him, they said, is that really Job? Not because they, he was a stranger, because he was so disfigured uh, by the disease and, and by his, his sorrow and his grief. And they sat with him for seven days, and yet the terror of what was happening to him overwhelmed them. Perhaps he was infectious, and they would get this disease. Or perhaps the judgment of God would fall upon him and uh, in turn would fall upon them because they were too close to him. So uh, they stood back. Basically, were throwing their words at Job the way boys 
perhaps would stand behind a fence and throw rocks at a bull on the other side of the fence. They distanced themselves and they, they hurled abuse against Job. They did not come to him in compassion. Then Job shows the unreasonableness of their response in verses 22 and 23. Indeed, you have now become such, you're just like this, you see a terror and afraid. Have I said, give me something? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the hand of the adversary? Or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? He says, why are you treating me this way? And why do you keep me at arm's length? Why are you hurling words at me? He said, have I sought anything from you? I have asked you to do anything to help me in my distress. He said that, um, uh, I didn't say give me something. You could see their hand going over their wallet. Um, or offer a bribe. You know, pay off somebody. Um, redeem me. See if you could redeem my livestock and, and pay a price to get my livestock back. Or actually... Act bravely like Abraham and go after these men and bring back my property or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants. He said, I, he said, I didn't ask anything of you. I didn't even invite you. You came and you, you came, well, admittedly you came with good motives, but uh, you have not come in compassion. They stood aloof and they demonstrated the betrayal of a true friend by failing to show compassion to Job. Now, there's a negative lesson here for us, and that is Job was not the kind of friend who expected things out of his friend. You know those kind of people, how they will take advantage of you. They expect you to go here and then the extra mile and to do this and to do that, and they can become quite a drain on you emotionally or even materially. And Job was a good friend. You know, he didn't ask them, even, you know, give me a handout, you know, help me here. Would you treat my wounds or whatever? No. And so negatively, we learn something about friendship. But positively, the, the lesson that we have here is what we read in 1 John uh, chapter 3. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Or James, if a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what is that? These men should have taken the initiative, and we'll come back to this at the end of the sermon. They actually should have done these things that Job said, I've not asked you to do any of these things. And as we think about being a compassionate friend, we need to think in terms of the concrete acts of love produced by compassion and sympathy. But let us move now to the second thing here, and that is that a true friend speaks truth in love. A true friend is compassionate. A true friend speaks truth in love. Uh, Joe points out in verse 24 in the first half of 25 the importance of being reproved. Teach me, and I will be silent. And show me where I have erred. How painful are honest words. Now Job humbles himself here. And he says, I recognize that we all need reproof. I'm not obstinate 
I'm not opposing uh, reproof. I'm not opposing you speaking truth to me. And so he says, go ahead and tell me. I will humble myself. I will be silent, but show me where I have erred. So that's the important thing. Um, how painful are honest words? Now, this word painful can also be translated how forceful, how penetrating, that truthful, honest words will penetrate um, the, conf- uh, the conscience. And we know then that Solomon will tell us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. They penetrate, they are painful, but they are important and necessary. I want you boys and girls to listen to me for a moment now. Look up. Okay. Remember that uh, when you were baptized, you don't remember, but I'm going to remind you. When you were baptized, uh, the members of the congregation also took a vow to look over your nurture and admonition and discipline. And I have watched some of you when either your parent or one of us has rebuked you, taught you, corrected you, you've responded sullenly. That means with anger or pouting or not accepting correction. And not to accept correction puts you in a very dangerous place as a covenant child. And this is true then for us as adults. We must humble ourselves and be willing to accept the correction when someone comes to us and speaks the truth that we can say with Job, I'll be silent. Are you doing that? It's difficult. It's difficult for me, I know. It's difficult to humble ourselves when someone comes. Um, Many of us come out of broken homes, and it's even more difficult for a man or a woman who has that insecurity that's caused by divorce to be open and humble under correction person needs acceptance, and unduly so. And so you must pray that God will give you the grace uh, to humble yourself, to recognize the truth of what Job says here. Teach me, I'll be silent. Show me how I have erred. Painful are honest words, forceful. But, he says to them, what does your argument prove? In other words, they've not spoken true words. They've not spoken honest words. No, they have spoken wrongly. He says how? In verse 26, Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? He says, you're not look past this. I am a despairing man. I am a melting man. And I have spoken rashly. That was a sin. But that's all you're dealing with. You're dealing with my words. You're using my words to determine who I really am. And he said, you should have looked past my words. You should have looked for the truth of my situation and spoken to the truth of the situation. And that's also important for us. when We think we should come alongside a brother or sister and give them a word of, of admonition or rebuke. Let us be sure that we're speaking to the real issue and not to the imagined issue. And then he says, you do not just speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. He now shows how unloving they were as they dealt with him. Verse 27, would you even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend? He said, this is how you've approached me. You've approached me as someone 
who uh, would throw dice or cast lots to get the, the property of their friend. Of course, we're reminded of our Savior as he hangs on the cross and the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. What despicable and hateful act that is. Or he, he continues in that verse, um, barter over your friend. You see, he's put himself in this position of being like an orphan. He has been cast off. He's lost everything. Even his wife, for some period of time, has turned against him. You think God has, has cast him off as well. He's, he's, he's worse off than an orphan. And so he's, he's saying to them, are you bartering um, over your friend um, who is no better off than an orphan? They were coming in a very unloving manner as they were throwing their words at him. He concludes now with a vindication of himself. Please look at me, verse 28, and see if I lie to your face. Here's the testimony of a good conscience. We can hear the Apostle Paul so often says uh, to his recipients, uh, you know who I am. I'm telling the truth. You know I've dealt with you. And that's the, the appeal now that Job makes is to prove that they're not dealing with him in truth and in love. He said, look, look at me. Look at my eyes. I'm Job. You know who I am. Do I appear to be to you a liar? One who's covering over truth? And then he says twice, stop, stop, desist now. Let there be no injustice because, stop, because my righteousness is yet in it. It's in me. He says, I'm not an unrighteous man. I've spoken wrongly. But you're not dealing with Job. You're not dealing with with a man who, in conscience, knows that he is blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turns away from evil. And so he concludes with a question, is there any injustice on my tongue? Yes. Cannot my palate discern calamities? Now remember, they have, not just themselves, but they concluded in, in chapter 5, uh, Eliphaz concludes, We've investigated it, and so it is. Hear it, know for yourself. And he begins that chapter. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? They've appealed to the conscience of the believing community. And Job says, look, I am a righteous man. I also am a holy one. I can discern calamity and sin. And I'm not doing the things that you're accusing me of doing. So he answers them by showing how wrongly they dealt with him. And because this is wisdom literature, the Spirit gives us this uh, beautiful speech with the extended metaphor to help us, or similitude, to help us grasp this truth then. In Job's betrayal, what is the nature of a true friend? The nature of a true friend is one who is compassionate and speaks the truth in love. Now, against this, we have four marks by which we then should look at ourselves as friends. A true friend, obviously, is going to be one who is compassionate. Who can come alongside a friend, not with preconceived notions, not with a desire to condemn, but who comes alongside a friend for the purpose 
of bringing genuine covenant love, help, sympathy to be whatever the friend needs. A true friend is compassionate. Second, a true friend is patient. We've already talked about Eliphaz's and the others, their their impatience. They're jumping to hasty uh, conclusions about Job rather than patiently coming alongside of him and trying to learn uh, through compassion and sympathy, that idea of, you know, walk a mile in my shoes, coming alongside trying to learn and be patient then to get to the depth of the problem or the sorrow of the friend in order to understand And then third, a true friend is going to be proactive. I've already touched on this. But, you know, those men, what should they have done? These were wealthy men. Job, do you need some money? Job, can I put some salve on your wounds? Job, we have large households. Do you want us to go and and try to, to get back your livestock? Or, you know, Job, we could each give you a starter flock of camels and and oxen and and sheep uh, and help you get on your feet again. They didn't do that, did they? And they were so busy throwing stones across the fence at Job that they never ever entered their mind of what they ought to be doing as a friend. And that brings us back to those two statements in uh, 1 John and, and in James of how Christ wants us not just to love in word. It's so easy to love in word. It's even easy to pray for one another. But if we're praying for someone and they've got a particular need and we don't step up as individuals or as a congregation to do what we're able to meet that need, even sometimes it's going to be sacrificial. It, it might mean helping uh, with childcare or homeschool. It might mean... Uh, and as we grow as a congregation, we're going to be faced with these things. Are we going to be ready as a congregation with the meals, with the shared child care, with helping out uh, a working mother or someone going back to school in order to help even with homeschooling or whatever? As a church, to be able to step alongside and help diagonally. Let me remind you again of our confession on the communion of saints. In chapter 26, it's all bound up in our union in the Lord Jesus Christ. And being united then in him to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion is God offereth opportunities to be extended unto all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. This is to be our commitment. We are the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. We're all not going to be close friends. You know, it's, it's rare to have more than a few close friends. But we are a family. And as we are friends with God, we're friends with one another. And this friendship then obligates us to this relationship. And it's glorious as God will give us opportunity 
to express this and to show then the beauty and love of Christ to the world uh, that is around us. It also means that uh, even though I said don't be the kind of friend who has unnecessary expectations, you must be one who's willing to come to your church and your church family and say, help me, I'm in trouble. Or when you're offered help, oh, that's okay. I don't need it. No. You must be willing to ask for it. You must be willing to accept it for it's part of the proactive nature of godly relationships. And then the fourth aspect of true friendship is compassionate, it's patient, it's proactive. And then we see as well that it does speak the truth in love. This means we must speak the truth uh, faithfully. We must be willing to come alongside a brother or sister and not neglect speaking the truth because of cowardice or because of mistaken notions. We must be willing to come. We must be willing to come uh, in love and humbly. We must be willing to recognize that uh, love does cover a multitude of sins. You've got to distinguish, is this a pattern that I'm observing in my sister or my brother, or was this a one-time thing? Um, be very hard on yourself. Don't cover over your sins, but make long excuses for the sins of your brothers and your sisters. And then don't be so unfaithful so as to, well, I'm not going to speak to them, but what you end up doing is making a joke about the thing that bothers you. And in doing that, not only have you hurt the other person, you've done them no good spiritually. So if it's bothered you enough to say something, then you must be willing to say it gently and in love. Now, as we think about these four marks of being a friend, we all recognize how much we fail uh, against these marks. And of course, that brings us to the only place that we should come, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in redeeming us, has modeled for us uh, the very things that we're, we're talking about. That, as he says in, in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. We think of Judas. Judas did barter for him, didn't he? For 30 pieces of silver. His life, 33 years companion, intimate. And yet he betrayed him. Or as, as we sang in Psalm 38, 11, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand far off. Um, denied by Peter. All the apostles except John fled. And those that were there stood far off and, and were afraid. To come near. He understood betrayal. Now, on the one hand, because of that, when you are betrayed, you know where to go. He understands. But also, as I said, you get into the emotional life of the Savior. When you see what he suffered, pray then that he will develop in you compassion as you meditate, not just on the outward acts, but on the reality. Meditate on him and ask the Spirit of Christ to put within you a true compassion to make you a compassionate friend who will then speak the truth in love. Of course, there's also the solemn reminder of where to put your trust. Even the best friend's going to let you down, right? Even spouses, we let each other down. And that teaches us that our ultimate trust must be in the triune God, 
and not in men. Because of the triune God is true friendship. As we uh, were reminded uh, that Abram was a friend of God, and so are you if you're trusting Christ this morning. If you're not trusting Christ this morning, then you're not a friend of God. In fact, you're an enemy of God, and there's no worse place in the world to be than an enemy of God. Because he then will not, he bears long, but at some point he's going to throw thunderbolts at you. He's going to cast you down. And if you persist in a life of rebellion, he shall bring you into eternal judgment. But through Jesus Christ, you can be a friend with God. Your children understand this. God has said to you that he is a friend to you because of his covenant. Now, it's very important that you own that friendship and that by faith you make yourself a friend. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.